everybody, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. Uh, this week, our co-host is uh, uh, Steve Holden. I call him the Venerable Steve Holden, uh, and he is a member of the Python community from the the inception of the universe. Um, <laughs> yeah, not quite that long. Not quite that long. Hi, Kenneth. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, pretty well, thank you. Talking from my uh, basement man cave in London. And unfortunately, Alex is not here to join us um, because this week he is on a spirit quest in the tropics uh, swimming with the dolphins. So we will hear about his new insights into uh, everything uh, when he returns. Well, hopefully he's going to be really relaxed and at peace when he gets back from that quest. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Not that he isn't normally, I suppose. No, he's a pretty chill dude. Um, let's see here. So, Steve Holden, uh, why don't you tell uh, everybody yep. who you are and why they should care about who you are? Uh, well, they shouldn't care about who I am. <laughs> I try not to care. I try not to care about who I am too much. I I disagree. Not... I think that uh, you have an important. Uh, what's the right way to put this? You know, you've played an important part in the Python community. Well, I'd like to think the 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 ideas that I con or try to convey are more important than any particular contribution I may have made to the to the Python community. Really, you know, it's all it's all part of everything. It, I don't just I didn't just start PyCon because I thought it would be nice to become a personality in the in the Python world, although I certainly did understand when I started getting involved with Python that because it played to a few of my strengths, it was likely that I'd achieve a certain amount of visibility. And I wanted to try and use it to kind of give people the same sort of enjoyment I had when I started off in computing. Yeah, like, I kind of feel the same way where it's like, it's it's okay to capitalize on, like, a notoriety of yourself. Um, I'm not comfortable with that, though, unless, like, I feel like I'm Giving, you know, it's like a mutual exchange, if that makes sense. Well, right. I mean, that's that's what I like about PyCon and, and the Python community. You know, if, if you're lucky enough to be able to go to a PyCon where there are core developers there, they're just as happy to talk to you as they are to anybody else because, they're, they're, you know, they're there because they love the language and they want to promote, well, one of the PSF's goals, isn't it, to promote the growth of the international Python community and all all the developers are really into that. And I mean Guido Van Rossen himself, he he doesn't have any airs or graces. He's just you know he admit he he has to know he's a good programmer and a good language designer, but he doesn't make a big deal of it. And he's a family man as well. You know he has a life besides Python. Well, he's a bit uncomfortable with the uh, adoration. <laughs> I actually, I was well, really yeah. to see at PyCon. I was talking to him for a few minutes because we're like light buddies. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, then like a, some, you know, a fan, like a, like a super fan came up and was like, I can't believe it's you. And, you know, and it was yeah. so cool to see how he handled that situation. Cause like he, I know how much he hates it, uh, but he, well, yeah, he, but he's, he's also he's deeply, empathetic. He's right? a deeply nice, he's a deeply nice person. Yes. And he appreciates, he appreciates the impulse behind it. And he realizes that these people don't realize it's probably the, 14th time that day somebody's come up and done it to him and he does come across to some people as being quite crass but that's just because he's dutch 
you know what I mean? Like the, the Dutch personality is a very blunt one and sometimes in their sense of humor. Yeah, well, I mean, we know all about that. I, I come from Yorkshire and we're supposed to be blunt there too. Yeah, it's a... We call a spade a spade, they say. I quite, I quite enjoy him, and it, I, but I can't hold a conversation with him very long. I feel like I kind of have to lead it, because um, uh, I don't think he's a very like he's just not a so, very social, talkative person. Uh, unless, you, unless you start talking about stuff that's unrelated to Python, you're like you just talk about life and stuff. Then he like goes on and on, and it's really cool. Well, sure. I think probably, you know, if, if I was Guido, I'd probably be more interested in people who wanted to talk to me about not Python things than Python things, because he spends half his life thinking about Python, presumably. Yeah, exactly. And that's the only thing people bother him about. They're like, how are your kids? <laughs> well, I don't think, no, I don't think people do bother him too much. And as I say, he's, you know, he's very gracious because he realizes that people are uh, in some awe of the guy who's created something that they really you know, that's really helping them. So I, uh, one of the first times I talked to him, I mentioned it, I asked him, yeah. what, what does this feel like? It, and it was at, it was being at PyCon and there were so many people, you know, that, you know, yeah. the, the idea that you started this and then this happened. And I don't remember his response, but it was, is uh, nonchalant. Uh, I'm, I want to ask you the same question as someone who was like there and like helped create the first PyCon. What is it like yeah. to just see how much it's grown? Uh, well, it, I suppose, first of all, it's an affirmation in uh, my belief in the powers of community, apart from anything else, because I always wanted PyCon to be a, a proper community conference. Yeah. And to be honest, okay, I, I put a lot of time and effort into the first three chaotic years, <laughs> but it, it didn't get properly organized until, uh, first of all, Andrew Kuschling. And then I think Van Lindbergh uh, did their stints as chairman. So the fact that I did the first three years shouldn't, it doesn't mean that I'm responsible for the whole thing, you know. And one of the gratifying things about PyCon is looking, when I, you know, when I go now, I've had basically zero to do. Well, I didn't go this year, but when I go next year, it'll be the same story. You know, I'll have had basically zero to do with organizing it. And yet, yeah, yeah, I'll be able to enjoy it because it's it's something that's so. I don't know. It, it's something that people want to get behind, and so it doesn't need a one person to carry its banner. You know, it just works because it works. Yeah, it's like well, if you're a good engineer, you build something that uh, you don't have to actively maintain constantly, right? Ideally, it, you know, it's kind of self-sustainable, and then you just get alerts when there's issues. And I feel like. You know, not not that you're an engineer behind PyCon, but you certainly were in a way for the first three, because there were many many people involved, I'm sure. But you you were well, the yeah, one who you, was at I the I suppose top. what you what you could say is I took PyCon through its alpha stage, if you like. Yeah. It, but the prototype wasn't put into production because it depended too much on on too few individuals, and clearly that wouldn't scale. And I had no idea it was going to end up being, what is it now, a 3,000-person conference or something crazy like that. It's, and it's a number very close to I that, look, yeah. Right. Yeah, I gave um, a keynote to Pike and Malaysia a, a few weeks ago, and uh, I was talking to them because they're quite a small conference at the moment about how it might seem silly, but you know they should expect that uh, there might be quite a lot of growth in their conference over the next few years because PyCon, uh, Python 
continues, I'm happy to say, to get more popular. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's really cool to see. It's uh, I love that it, Python is interesting to me because most people don't know that it's older than Java. Um, you know, and it's like that just gives it a lot of validity, yeah. and it's you know part of the core uh, Linux standard base, and it's uh, yeah, it's not it's not atrophying in any way, uh, despite those facts, and I think that that's really cool to see. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been involved with computing long enough that I've I've seen technologies come and go. Yeah, didn't you and like kind of teach Sun... the guy who like wrote Smalltalk or something like that? Did I do what? Did you like like educate the guy who invented yeah. Smalltalk or something? Oh God, no. Or... Well, Alan Kay certainly not. No, wouldn't wouldn't presume. No, I remember some story you told me. Um... It was something I miss remembering, but. There was some relation. Ah, well, there is. I mean, small talk does figure in my past because uh, that's how I got interested in object-oriented programming. I left school at 15 and oh, okay. I didn't go to university until I was 23. And the first year I was there, I came across these papers by a guy called Alan Kay from Palo Alto's research center, uh, Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, about this language called small talk, which at the time used... Um, a very bizarre terminal with strange keys, so it wasn't an ASCII character set. Oh, really? But it represented, yeah, but it represented programs by sending, um, by having operators send messages between objects. Uh, so okay. it so was, kind of like uh, the way uh, Objective-C works. I don't really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to suggest I knew Objective-C well enough to agree with that statement but i wouldn't be surprised yes, i don't know object to see either but i'm under the impression that it's kind of like a message sending model okay well yeah i mean python uh sorry not python small talk had some some pretty weird rules one of which was that expressions were executed serially there was no concept of operator precedence because it was all about sending messages and so as soon as you got told to send a message it got sent to the next thing in line and um, when I was teaching at Manchester University in the you... early 1980s, I had a research student implement Smalltalk ah, so that okay. I could get to use okay. it a bit This is more. when I got confused. All right, gotcha. Ah, right, yeah. So um, the guy's name is Mario Walchko. He was the director of research at Sun Microsystems, so I, I presume he's still a part of what's now the Oracle Empire, isn't it? Uh, hello, Mario, if you're listening. <laughs> So Mario implemented Smalltalk, and um, I discovered by using it that I didn't actually like it <laughs> in the Python world. In the Python world, people know what I mean when I say it didn't fit my brain. So it's not like mm. it's a bad language or it's a good language. I just didn't find it a very practical language in which to express the algorithms I wanted to express. So it's not a question of value judgment, and that's, that's something that happens a lot in the open source world. I'm sure you've heard conversations where people vie about the merits of one language over the other and i i sometimes feel like saying look guys we're just trying to solve problems right it doesn't matter what language you use as long as it's an effective solution to a real problem yeah at the same time i think it's like well for me my mentality is like python for me is uh it has a lot of there's a lot of reasons that i love it basically i think it's a well-designed language and uh i not just from the aesthetic perspective, but just the, the, the way the whole thing works all the way down. And it's very thought out and well-designed. And, uh, and to me, oh, to yeah, me the moving, that's a the value. Moving. 
that I like value the most. So I do kind of dismiss yep. languages like Ruby. Um, and I, I do think that they're inferior. Uh, but that at the same time, I know other people have other ways of thinking and they love Ruby for completely different reasons, but they have different values than I do, you know? Well, yeah, but uh, all I'm saying is you, we don't need to speak about these as moral judgments. They're simply engineering choices. Yeah, yeah. And for me, it's all about how much taste you have, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, because I've, I've, all, I've never been a very good mathematician, but I've always really loved particularly pure mathematics. And uh, to me, one of the things I like about Python is that there's a certain beauty about, way, uh, about the way that fairly axiomatic behaviors are repeated reliably. So it, it meshes very well with a sort of principle of least surprise. And I know, you know, there are warts like, oh, well, um, mutable default arguments are executed in the namespace of the declaration and not executed in the, you know, call environment immediately before calling and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, as a set of design choices, Python is is both pragmatic and beautiful, so, which is basically why I fell in love with it in 1995 or six. I, I want to go back to this, but uh, uh, yeah. I want to pause for a moment. And uh, so when I was just getting started with Python, I was a couple years in and I had done work with a lot of different languages and Python is the only one that I ever really fully understood. Like I, I was like actually mm -hmm. like in depth, you know, like programming with the other ones were just kind of surface level. Um, yeah, right. And, and I, so I was like in love with Python. I have like a passion for it. And I, I kind of advertise that uh, like on my website and stuff. And I remember you reached out to me and you were the first person in my life, um, which I hope the viewers might find interesting uh, with listeners uh, that uh, you, yep. you, we live near each other and you reached out to me. And uh, I thought that that was super cool that someone... Um, that, that my love of Python was interesting to someone else because I didn't even know that that was a thing to anyone else at that time. Uh, and and then we met, you know, and then you told me about PyCon yeah. and stuff. And it was just, uh, the idea of going to a, like an event for Python. It sounded just like like next level, you know, to me. So it took me a couple of years to, to get to that. But what what I guess I want to ask. You, you actually, you, you climbed through the ranks pretty quickly, I have to say. And I mean on the basis of honest contributions to open source as well, which is the nice thing about you. I mean, you've done a lot for the Python world in terms of contributions to libraries with requests and the recent work you've been doing on SQL. Thank you. Yeah, and I guess I guess my question for you that would be interesting to ask on the air is just like, what was your... This is like an egotistical question. <laughs> no, not really introspective i'm i'm wondering like you know when you met me i remember i was pretty unreliable because i was doing a little bit of work for you uh, yeah. uh and and i don't know like i i obviously had a passion for python though and like that's all i had and i'm i'm curious if if it surprised you to see me grow or or not i'm not sure does that make sense no not not at all and and if you've got time, I'll tell you a story about a young lad of about uh, 16 who had left school at 15 and started a career in electronics by working as a trainee production engineer in a television factory. 
but then by accident after 18 months uh, having decided that the television factory didn't represent the future applied for a job at the local university's computing laboratory and the director of the laboratory Jimmy Ord Smith said to me because of course I was this 16 year old kid uh, that he felt I might be in danger of going off the rails. <laughs> he, proposed, he proposed to employ me for six months, huh. uh, during which time I would be operating the computer and learning how to program it, which I duly did. And uh, I've always felt grateful to him for, for what was a, a fabulous introduction into a, a subject that's fascinated me all my life. And so, obviously, you know, when I, I see promising young people I do my best to encourage them yeah. and also it, it means you know I mean the point is you don't I just like Guido you know I, I don't think of myself as any kind of a star but I'm a human being I've got human responses I've I've experienced what other people's interest and kindness helped me to do in progressing my career and I want other people to have the same experience which is Again, basically, there's the simplest at uh, the simplest level. That's the impetus behind PyCon. I just wanted other people to have an opportunity to fall in love with the language the same way you and I did. Yeah, I, I'm going through the same thing right now with someone. I I kind of like lightly escorted a friend of mine into programming a couple, many years ago, and uh, I, yeah. I, I I you know suggested Python, and he ended up going to Ruby for many years, and that was good for him. And now he's back. Now he's switching yep. to Python. Now he was at PyCon this year, and it was just so cool to see to see that. And so now I'm, I'm, there's a, a, a friend of mine in my life that I just met, and he's like a 19 year old kid who's um, or no no <coughs> 20 today, and uh, <coughs> you know me. happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he, I don't know, I'm doing the same thing with him, and it's interesting because I'm. Yeah, it's not just. Me, though, I'm kind of, like, introducing him to the community. So, like, you know, there's another programmer here who, uh, yeah. who like, is kind of more able to help him get his career started, maybe. But it's with PHP. So, you know, I'm trying to explain to him the, uh, you know, why that's probably a good move for him, but why he needs to, like, keep in mind Python still, basically. <laughs> <coughs> so, it's, I don't know, it's interesting oh, well, to, sure, to yeah. do that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, if if somebody can turn a buck uh, writing PHP, I I don't, yeah, you know, I, I suggest they carry on and and do it and enjoy doing it if they if that's going to put a crust on the table, you know. Yeah, oh, exactly, exactly. Again, not a religious issue. It's like I did, people I did need the same PHP thing. programmers. I did PHP development for many In years fact, after learning Python and loving it, just because that's what I needed to do to make money, you know, and it, it's. Oh, right, I remember. And then you did some net, .NET programming as well, didn't you? Yeah, for only for about three months, um, and then a little bit of everything. And then I, you know, then I, my skills that I cultivated on the side were finally strong enough to be able to you know, land a full-time Python job. And that's when I like, really was happy uh, for myself. Well, so. yeah, but I mean, you, you established your chops publicly. I mean, you, um, any Python jobs you've ever won you've won on the basis of demonstrated programming ability apart from anything else yeah exactly and so you know there's there's it's just it's cool to like kind of do the mentorship style thing uh, you did that a little with me and i had a, a few other people that were really monumental in that for me and i just know that i couldn't have got none of the stuff that i did 
would have happened is, uh, I don't know. I just think it helped me like a lot. I don't know if I would have been able to accomplish anything without. Oh, good. I'm very glad. Yeah. And and the fact, the fact that you're giving other people the, the opportunity to enjoy the same thing is it's like the old paying it forward, you know, really, or you can pay it back, pay it forward. It doesn't matter. Just help people. Yeah, just like you remind and... me of myself, and I remember how much I needed that, and I didn't even know. Sure. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, well, yeah. right, yeah, and I mean, we we couldn't have had an intellectual discussion about it, but I could offer you some practical help. I could put some trust in you. I could not shout at you when you flaked out, as, you know, late teenage kids often will. <laughs> and uh, I gave you some responsibility, and you took it. Yeah, and the uh, the... The guy who really helped me, uh, he was doing web and PHP stuff. He offered to, I didn't have a job, so he offered to pay me $400 a month to just sit with him in his office and help him with... Oh, this was the guy who was working with Seth Godin, right? Yes, yes. Uh, his name was uh, Corey Brown. And uh, and yeah. and he basically, like, you know, it was like half the time I'm helping him with his stuff, with technical stuff. So he's getting really cheap technical labor. And I'm learning a lot, you know. So it's like that. It's like getting your first like junior development gig, where it's like I I consider that at least for me to be uh, they're they're paying me to and and I get to learn basically. It's like a good thing, yeah, so that, so that I can leave. That was a good deal. <laughs> and do something else on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's just uh, it's cool to see the, the those relationships at that level because when I'm at PyCon, I'm talking to. All these people who are, you know, if you're making, if you're at PyCon, you're you're usually in an established place in your life, you know, for the most part. Um, well, yeah. Although, don't forget, don't forget that the Python Software Foundation spends a lot of money on financial aid to make sure that people who aren't part. This is, I, I'm sounding a warning note, I suppose, because that's exactly the kind of thing that PyCon was started to avoid. To you know, that it, it was never supposed to be something that's only for the well-heeled and wealthy, because... Oh, I didn't mean like that. I guess I just meant like... Yeah, well, all to... right. I'm, I'm probably being oversensitive or just, t- you know, taking an opportunity to, to make a point that I feel sometimes isn't appreciated as well as it might be. But, yeah, I mean, the PSF is spending over $100,000 a year just helping people to go to PyCon. So all I really want to get... The real message I want to get through, I suppose, is, you know, don't think you can't go to PyCon. Because there's a possibility you can. I'm not going to say I can make everyone's dream come true, but <laughs> anyone can apply for assistance. Definitely, definitely. I I get. I guess cool. what I what I was saying was just the the people that I am surrounded with when I'm at PyCon uh, yep. in my social circle are all um, you know they're like established in in what they do and all this other stuff. So. When it's it's interesting yeah, they've, to they've got their chops in the Python world. It's interesting to accidentally come across someone who's like just getting started, you know, and they they don't really know what they're getting into, and um, trying to help like guide them and show them and tell them things like that, like you know, there's financial aid available, you know, you know, like that type of stuff, you know, when they're not a part of the community yeah. yet. Uh huh. Well, yeah, it's a kind of evangelism, I suppose. Yeah. If you like, but yeah, I I got a lot of help when I was a, a fourteen and fifteen year old kid and and getting interested in amateur radio. The first station I had as a radio ham was basically bits of kit that other people had given me and lent me. Did you uh, did you broadcast? 
Uh, well, it's not broadcast. You're not allowed to broadcast as a radio amateur, in the, uh, certainly not in the United Kingdom anyway. But no, I mean, person to person. Uh, so, you know, it was like you could, I could speak to my buddies uh, without having to pay. Although, of course, you've got to remember when I, when I grew up in the United Kingdom, all phone calls were paid for. There's none of this like local calls are free business. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I have, I have yeah, a I mean, fascination I with... I sometimes think... Oh, go ahead. A fascination with what? Sorry? Oh, I have a fascination with, uh, like, I have a, 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 you know, an analog uh, FM AM radio over here, and then I have a shortwave, and then uh, yeah, when they fix up the air, I don't know what what the what it's called, but the band that the airports use, and uh, well, know, like a shortwave radio, single sideband shortwave radio, something like that. Yeah, and like, like to me, th- those devices to me are magical compared to a computer. Yeah. A computer is a very mechanical device to me, and to me, like the fact that you can do these things in an analog manner is like complete magic to me. And I have a lot of analog synthesizers too, and I just love studying wave modulation and or not studying. You know, I'm, I'm just really interested in those concepts. Uh, that I think are uh, yeah, but, uh, but I mean, I, I without without wishing to demean your um, inestimable intellectual powers, ultimately it's all information, isn't it? Oh, definitely. No, I'm, I just like yeah. one of them just feels more, it's more real, and the other one's more abstracted. But I know that that's not true. Like I said, uh, an analog synthesizer is a computer. You know, it's just a different type of computer, effectively, or function generator, if you will. Uh, well, right. Yeah. And, but just the power, just the idea of like analog waves and all the, the tech, all the different uh, methods that we have for sending information over them, you know, by modulating yeah. in different ways is that that yeah. as a someone who's been really interested in only programming for a long time, looking at that and seeing how that works is just very is completely fascinating to me. Ah, uh, oh, well, you see, I was I was fully versed with the analog world by the time I entered the world of the digital. Because being a radio am, you have to know about continuous waveforms. Yeah, and but then you see they have and they have digital radio, and that's just the same thing with effectively really advanced mathematics on top of it. And it's uh, I stop there. I don't go above that level. Uh, but I don't know. The whole thing is just super. Like I don't know. I I don't know what I'm trying to say about it, but it. Like as someone who was raised well, like I mean, okay. as a kid, we, we my could, first like could... experiences were playing Nintendo. You know, so I'm a yeah. digital. I've been raised in a digital environment, so seeing electronics sure. that feel that operate in the same manner, but are operating with like real electrons and like you know you know capacitors and all that stuff, like a computer is, but in an analog fashion, uh, just totally. Yep. They just feel like magic to me, basically. Like like. They're more impressive, if you will. I think that that is more impressive technology than a computer is, in my mind. Ah, well, you see, because of my initial interest uh, was electronics, I got fairly deeply into the um, electronics of digital systems when I started to work with computers. And it was, I remember when I started programming, the thing that fascinated me was sudden realization that text was being represented as numbers and if you could represent text as numbers you could represent anything as numbers and so the stored program digital computer had the power not just to do numerical calculations but to deal with any kind of information at all as long as you could represent it in some suitable way that was amenable to the computations you wanted to to run on it that was quite a revelation to a it's kind of akin to the 17-year-old uh, kid. Oh, definitely. That's kind of akin to the Turing machine idea, right? Where it's like 
Because if you have an infinite amount of time, they're all the same. <laughs> ah, well, I mean, I would certainly, at the age of 17, I've got no concept of, of the work that Turing had done on computability or anything like that. I mean, I've, uh, I've always found that sort of deep technical theory not impossible, but difficult to grapple with. You know, it's not my natural sphere of thought, although obviously you have to understand the implications since they are mathematical results. Yeah, I'm not a computer scientist. I, I started going to school for CS and I dropped out because it just seemed like it wasn't useful for me at all. And I hate school. Well, yeah, it, it drives me it drives me crazy now because both in the, the United Kingdom and in the United States, uh, there's this whole, there's, it's like there's a vacuum because parents want their children to, to suck up computer science. And there, there are schools feeling panicked because they have to teach kids computer science and they I maintain they don't you know they need to teach kids how to program how to represent information how to deal with it how to exchange it yeah you we've and, had this conversation before you know, it, it needs and, yeah and it you, needs to be it, uh, it cannot be presented as a theoretical subject it, it needs to be information technology needs to be immediately useful to people in order for them to get at all motivated to use it anyway, right? Well, the idea that we discussed this once before, and my takeaway was uh, basically, you know, I'm, I get annoyed when I hear people say every kid should learn how to program, you know, or, or everyone should learn how to program as like a basic skill. And I'm like, no, 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 no. that sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, and then you agreed with me and you, well, said, I mean, I, you certainly... said that we wanted to, yeah. what was actually important was computational thinking. And that's the important right. part. Well, I'm a computational scientist, so I would say that, you know, I'm arguing for research grants for computational scientists, I suppose. But no, I do think people sometimes ask me, you know, what's the difference between computer science and computational science? And I say, well, you know, computer science is about the fundamental theories and computational science is about we work out how to work things out. But for a practical level, for like literally every, let's say every person in the US, yeah, I, yeah. I think the pitch that you and I kind of agreed on was the idea that computational thinking, like how to think in a computational manner, uh, right. break down problems in that way, is like a core skill that is not taught. Um, well, yeah, but that's, uh, that is, I think, because the, the people who are, being, who are currently being required to teach it haven't been taught it themselves, poor dears. You know, I mean, there's a lot of uncomfortable teachers at the moment saddled with a quote computer science curriculum, and this is not just in the the United States. And I I don't want anyone to think I'm knocking education in the United States because they are you know a lot of teachers are trying very hard to grapple with these ideas. But if they don't we're understand doing our best. themselves the power, I'm sorry. I said we're doing our best. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And so they, you know, I mean, this very weekend, as as we talk to each other, there's a whole bunch of teachers at PyCon UK. I couldn't get there this year because uh, work has kept me too busy to make the trip. But uh, there's a room full of teachers there, soaking up as much as they possibly can because they're desperate to help their kids learn this stuff. And of course, now we've got the chance of a million new Python users in the United Kingdom. Had you heard about that one? No. Okay. Have you heard of a guy called Nick Tolovey, Nicholas Tolovey? I don't believe I have. Oh, well, you certainly will, almost certainly. Um, Nicholas, is, he's a quite a, a well-established Python user, but he's also 
Uh, he's a former teacher and uh, is also actually quite a capable musician, but we don't need to, to go into that here. But anyway, one of the things he did was uh, he badgered people and ferreted about to find out what was going on until uh, eventually the, the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, um, started a project to... Uh, build an experimental computer which could become a not exactly a universal device but something that was accessible in cost terms to almost anybody and they came up with this thing called the micro bit and uh, Nick Tolovey did a lot of work on building an early python chain and then he did some more work with a, a gentleman I can't remember Damien's second name at the moment offhand unfortunately but anyway Damien is one of the prime movers behind a Python 3 implementation called MicroPython, which I've started yes. to use quite a bit. And so Nick and Damien between them have engineered that the um, micro bit, which has been given away to a million 11-year-old school kids in the United Kingdom this year, will be able to run Python programs in a nice little IDE oh, on a PC, and then they can download the Python and get it compiled and run on the micro bit. I got to play with one of those at PyCon. That's the, is that the one with just a, ah, an right. array of yep, LEDs? That would be it. That's it, yep. basically? It's got a 5 by 5 LED matrix. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. And it's like $11 or something? It's mm. like super cheap. Like, and it, yeah, I'm, well, I, yeah, I, I mean, think it's super cool. Yeah, they're, they're nice little devices. I mean, yeah, personally, I prefer to spend twenty, but then I'm I don't have five kids and they all need a computer, you know. Yeah, it's about I've accessibility. Only my, I've only got myself to I've only got myself to buy toys for my uh, my kid is old enough to look after himself now. So it's for me, like you know, you're talking about like the revolution of 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 all these you know important things that people are discovering and how you know it's kind of pervaded, uh, you know, say computational society. I, I would like to be yeah. very idealistic. I mean, I have a tendency to like the default thought I have is to be very idealistic and say, oh, we're, we're going to do that again with quantum computing. And when that comes about, we're all going to, there's going to be a whole new, we're going to start from scratch basically and I'll learn how to program again in this different way. But, um, but then I think more practically and I think, no, that's probably going to be something that's like large organizations, you know, like, like have access to that technology. And, you know, it's kind of, Kind of like the old mainframe. I think it's going to go in that direction more because I don't necessarily yeah. think that'll be useful for everyday people. I don't think we'll switch over to quantum, but or maybe well, it'll be yeah, a gradual was, process. There, there was a point as I observed computers, yeah, laptop computers, getting more and more capable. Because um, th there are there are price points. You know, basically you can you can more or less predict a linear downward progression from the introductory pi price point in, in a digital system over a lifetime of about 18 months, after which basically nobody wants it. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, there came a point where they, they had to start making them cheaper because they were already, you know, like 10, 10 or 20 times faster than most people needed them to be. Most people, I mean, gamers accepted and people with serious computational requirements. But I mean, for the average PC user, the PC they've got now will probably do them for the next 10 years. Or anyway, even unless... an iPad. But that has that cycle. Well, yeah, right. It. Exactly. It certainly doesn't. I mean, the, the evidence is that within five to 10 years, 75% uh, of 
digital network traffic consumption will be taking place from mobile devices. Yeah, and that's kind of the theory I have is that like, so I got into the Mac because I, it was, uh, you know, the first uh, environment that I found. A, it has all the Unix layer, which really uh, surprised me. I was adept at Linux. Yep. I didn't know about that part. So I was re really excited. It was this perfect merge of Windows and Linux for me, and it's, it was better than both. Yeah, Mac OS is, Mac OS is, a, is not a bad Unix, I have no, to say. No, I, I love it. Um, I wouldn't yeah. run it in production, but I love it. Uh, so what is... What's, what's interesting is just observing how the community has changed around the Mac. And so when I first got it, I was my whole life. I've always been um, like like uh, obsessively downloading and trying every piece of available software that I could possibly find like, as a kid and as growing up. Well, yeah, I, I have observed that behavior with you and photographic equipment as well. <laughs> Maybe it's just in a behavior I have. Um, well, whatever. I mean, you enjoy it. You keep, you know. I mean, you take good photographs. You do good things with computers. I think you're entitled to seek out the instruments you want to use. Yes, exactly. It's because it's like, inspirational and it's something that I love. So, you know, sure, when I got exactly. onto the Mac, I, you know, there was just this plethora of amazingly well-written software, and it was always there was always new things, and that, and I was always like inspired by that, and it, that has completely stopped. There's like I haven't seen a new Mac app that interested me at all in years. And I think it's because all of that energy uh, has gone into yeah. mobile. And I also think it's because I think we kind of have the desktop figured out pretty well. It's like, you know, I think this is a, maybe we're done with the major, like, you know, utility innovations. You know, and maybe the desktop is here to stay or go. But it, it, for the time being, like, I don't think there's more work to be done on it, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, what people haven't realized is that ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to have audited conversations with uh, blockchain verification. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely innovations in that space. But I'm, I'm talking about, like, just the functionality of what a desktop is for. Like, it was something that was always well, being discovered. most people don't need it. You know, yeah. when, I was, when I was in my um, late teens, early 20s, there was a guy, uh, I mean, he was a brilliant mathematician. Talk about smart. He worked out the fundamental logic necessary to maintain reliable transmission across a, a full duplex communication chain at the same time that the guys that, that were working on TCPIP did. Yeah. So he was a smart cookie, and I was enthusing to him as young people will. You know, you remember when you were younger how you thought that technology would change the world or whatever, and I was enthusing about how that would, how wonderful that world would be. And he said, yeah, but Steve, you have to remember what the average person is going to want from this system is to know, like, which horse ran the, which horse won the 330 at red car. Yeah, exactly. It's like a lot of people's information needs are quite simple. And there's no need to complicate the provision of the information that they need. And the trend that I've observed in my short life, in my short window, yours is much larger. Although mine is yeah. larger than my no. age because I always had really old hardware. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. just that uh, <laughs> my first computer is an IBM XT, uh, which is quite older than I was. Um, yeah. So, so it's just that you know, basically, when it's when it feels like it's a done, like you know, we've kind of solved the problem, which I feel like we have at the desktop. That energy goes into something new, like like these mobile devices. Yeah. Uh, and is that seem to be the trend that you've seen as well? Where it's like, well, when I mean, we figured the, this problem out, then it, then it just goes somewhere else. And that old thing might still be useful. It doesn't necessarily atrophy. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the point is that there's a whole there's a whole lower layer that people are only just starting to discover, right? Because, I mean, when you think about the classical, uh, have you seen, you've seen layered diagrams where uh, TCPIC, TCPIP systems are communicating with each other through multiple protocol layers. So the application hands something to the transport layer, which hands something to the network layer, which hands something to the data link layer which hands something to the frame layer and either an ethernet frame gets sent over the ethernet or some kind of packet of information gets sent over a serial or a wireless link and then it's decoded at the other end and the whole thing takes place all over again i mean that's pretty amazing isn't it definitely i mean that's just abstraction on abstraction on abstraction on abstraction right exactly yeah but the point is that when you when you can afford to take it for granted in other words when the technology is reliable yes you can build amazing things that you'd never thought you'd be able to build so from the perspective you have, uh, I, I know I'm more focused on like impact on daily life, not necessarily on computers themselves, but you're probably more on computers yeah. themselves. What, what is your, what do you think, like, where do you think we're headed in the next, you know, like in our, within our lifetimes? Well, it's difficult. It's difficult to say. I mean, if you think about the, the time I grew up, okay, the, the two futurist fantasies that got most attention were Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Is that a book you're familiar <laughs> yes. with? Yes. Okay, and um, George Orwell's 1984. Hmm. And in 2008, 2000, whenever, yeah, 2004 possibly, I don't know. But anyway, at some point it struck me that while, you know, I had always thought that the peril was to steer between these two evils yeah, through the Valley of Righteousness, I realised that I was in fact living in a society where uh, both 1984 and Brave New World had been realised. <laughs> At the same time. People were, being, people were being fed soma and kept in fear by the threat of constant war, yeah. So I thought, ah, well, very smart guys, Huxley and uh, Orwell. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I don't know who is writing stuff like that now, um, you know, for today. It's... I. I don't, I'm not much of a reader. I'm a, I just like read the the synopsis. You know, I'm a Cliff Notes person, uh, but it, it just interests me. Like, you know, it because I, 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 I don't know if people are actively thinking about this. I know people in the startup world are. They want to capitalize on the future. Sort of like, oh, we're going to do VR and we're going to do all these home automation and Internet of Things. Yeah. And you know, those seem like futuristic things. But I'm I I want to I think more practically about it. I'm like, you know, in 20 years. In thirty years, fifty years, what's the? Uh, how's my daily life going to be different because of you know technology? Uh, because I've seen in my lifetime, you know, I was born like right before the internet took off, and I was you know yeah. I have memories of that, and then watched it happen, and it's totally pervasive. So I'm interested to see if that happens again. Sure. Yeah. You know, in some other way, it wouldn't surprise me, but it also wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't. You know, like we don't need to. It doesn't need to be this consistently like disruptive process. It can maybe, maybe just slowly evolves, and like the internet is the internet. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, but it's all a question of ultimately. It, it seems to me it's all a question of whether people are prepared to live and let live. Yes. Yes. That's weird because it's one of those. Otherwise. 
we're all going to be hacking each other and trying to steal each other's money and God knows what all else that people waste their time on. Well, I mean, not waste their time. They do it for financial gain, but... That's something that I've struggled with personally because that's like one of my core values, effectively. And I went through some pretty dramatic changes in the last couple of years and removed myself from certain communities that I was involved in. And, um, And I had some like moral convictions about what was what what some of them are doing and well yeah I was, but i mean the point is i kind of struggled with first, this idea your first duty is to yourself right yeah exactly well yeah so i had i just you know I, I struggled with the concepts basically of like should i try to do something if i think that this is harming others mm-hmm. um and that's where the that's where the, the the compass needle lies effectively and you have to decide you know, is it okay for people to uh, harm, unintentionally harm, you know, give people the freedom to harm themselves if they wish, you know, even if it's unintentional? Oh, sure. Well, there's all that kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah, there are, the world is full of moral complexities. I mean, I, God knows I like to think of myself as a pacifist, but at the same time, as a result of you know, business relationships I was in with... Uh, certain companies I was occasionally for example you know required to teach courses in uh, establishments where you couldn't even go for a pee without being accompanied oh yeah and yeah. Uh, you know very glad of the work I was but yeah I, re- I remember I mean I won't name any names or pack drill but uh, one company I uh, one particular teaching gig I ended up talking to a guy uh, who was uh, his specialism was was uh, kill ranges and blast radius Hmm. So you could give him a topology and he had models that would say, well, you know, if you're here, there's a 98% probability that you'll, you'll suffer a fatality. Wow. And all that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, obviously, you know, there I was earning my living. I wasn't about to, to pull any moral stunts like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Or, you know, the guy, ultimately, there's a guy with a brain Earning a living, and his primary interest is not in in helping people to, uh, you know, it's not in dealing death. It's about earning money to keep his family alive. And yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't be too moralistic about that. You know, I mean, let's face it. So, uh, both you and I come from fairly warlike countries. This is very true. Oh, especially you. <laughs> Historically. You... Oh, yeah, right. I mean, by by the measure, you know. I mean, God knows how much unhappiness the uh, British Empire has been responsible for. Oh, man. Yeah. So the, the, basically, the, the where I fell was like, you know, I could, like, go two ways with this. I could, like, not care and look, hmm. the, other, look the other way. Uh, or I could, uh, you know, basically, like, inform people who would stop it, you know, legally or something. That type of thing, or you know, some kind of thing like that. And so, but I, I just fell in the middle. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do what I always do, and I, I didn't realize I always do this, but I'm just going to share my story, my perspective, g- give information, and that is available to people that they can go and they can find on their own, and you know, it, it can right. help who it's it needs not to like help. You're, it's not like you're standing on a soapbox; you're putting it out there, and if anyone finds it useful, so much the better. Exactly, exactly. And that, that seems to be the best approach for me is that like information is really the most important thing uh, in... Well, quite apart from anything else, right? People listen to this podcast for entertainment. You know, being entertained, they should 
give you leave to do whatever you find or hope will entertain them. Yeah. And inform them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying the power of information is is, is very powerful and it can help in a lot of different and ways. What I'm and saying as is long as we protect that, that, you know, that needs to be like, I, I, I've taken that for granted, I guess is what I'm saying. The, the, the power of information, uh, even though that's something yeah. that I've always valued the most. They just didn't recognize it. So it's kind of a cool thing to observe. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that for me, that's what, you know, all this technology is all about, basically, is spreading information. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes lament the back to if we go back to the the um, analog age, sometimes I'll be watching a TV program and there'll be, I don't know, a, a, a slow pan across a field of uh, corn or something like that, or, or across a, a bed sheet, a silky bed sheet with a reflective surface. And you'll see these fringing effects uh, induced by the digital technology that you never used to get with an analog television. And you wonder just how good it has to get before it's actually better than what we had 25, 30, <laughs> 40 years ago. Definitely. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're probably aware, because I know you're, you're something of an audiophile, you're probably aware that people uh, hark back to the good old valve amplifiers for the best and most authentic sound. Yeah, I have I have a tube amp, but I don't use it anymore. But yeah, I mean that's yeah, why I right. use an analog synthesizers. There, there's a to me there's a, a reality to them or a realness to them that's not present in digital. And you can emulate it quite yeah. well with circuitry modeling. Um, and digital is really great for doing yeah. like really pure pure sounds that you can't do with analog. But there's a sure. there's like an authenticity uh, that that analog has that I, I really well, right. appreciate. Well, right, but I mean let's. Let's never forget that digital signal processing is becoming ever more capable. <clears throat> yes, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, like the sun will come in the room and the pitch will change a little bit on the synthesizer, and you know that blows my mind. <laughs> I... Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, when I was a kid, the the first transmitter I uh, built for myself worked at what was it? One, it transmitted on a frequency of one point eight to two megahertz, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the idea of being able to uh, programmatically, digitally process a signal at that frequency would have seemed unimaginable. And now there are chips that can do it for, you know, like, I don't know, you're probably paying, if you're buying in thousands, you're probably paying 75 cents a chip. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, isn't it? So there's an enormous, an enormous amount of information processing capacity being developed all the time. Uh, did you hear Van Lindbergh talk about that? He gave a talk where he reminded us that actually most processing power is currently being added in people's pockets in their cell phones and on their iPads and that kind of stuff. Oh, I missed that part. Was that in his the data science talk he gave at PyCon? Um, I, 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 I actually saw him present similar talks on, on the same topic. About, I think it was about 18 months ago, something like that. But anyway, I mean, any time... You, you get to hear Van speak. He's always got something interesting to say. Oh, yeah. And he's also given great service to the Python Software Foundation, too. Oh, tremendous. He actually uh, he gave me some of the best advice I ever had. I had an, uh, a licensing issue. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I was working for a company as a contractor. And, uh, yep. you know, like becoming like a, a socially notoriable 
uh, not notable yeah. open source person was like a, like a life goal. Yeah, of mine. yeah, coming to people's attention in some kind of way. Yeah, and so that, and it's, I finally had a project that people were using, like a, a couple of companies were using. It was it wasn't like popular, but like to me it meant everything. Yeah, and they try sure. they and uh, they tried to take it from me. Uh, ah, and, nasty, nasty people. And then I uh, they they reviewed it and decided they couldn't, and that it was mine. Like yeah, I know. And then they handed me that twenty-page intellectual property agreement, and um, yeah, and I, I got in touch with Van and talked to him, and he uh, yeah, and then I you know I like read his book, and uh, that gave me the power basically to uh, you know leave that job because that sure. my intellectual property was more important to me uh, than you know what was going on there. Yeah, Van told you how to act in your best interests instead of those of your employers. Yeah, and he, so that book is called Intellectual Property and Open Source, and I really think that every open source developer who works for a company should own that or have read it because it goes through every single case and it shows you the worst case that has occurred in real life yeah. uh, from just yeah. like a, sim a single word being a certain way in a contract, like hereby versus promise oh, to and stuff like that. Like Those make huge differences. And it's a, it's a yeah. great book. And it explains yeah, all the well, different I mean, licenses, a... too, and why they're important. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Van's, I've heard Van talk to all kinds of people. He gave the very first time I went, there was a conference called GOSCON, or was, I don't know whether it still runs now, governmental open source conference in the United States. And the very first one I went to in D.C. when I lived in the D.C. area, you remember? Yeah. I heard Van giving a... Uh, keynote on legal implications of open source licensing and that kind of stuff and in those days of course it was there were a lot of people from government agencies who they'd seen the writing on the wall but you know they didn't have anybody in their agency or department or bureau who could actually tell them what it all meant in practical terms so to actually have a, a kind of sus lawyer laying out well if you do this it'll have these consequences and well, that, you might think it's a good idea to have your own license, but actually uh, you're a lot better off with one that's already been tried and tested. Yeah, that's the thing that's really great about Van is that he's both a lawyer and a programmer. So, and then he explains how, you know, basically legal documents are exactly like code and how they function in that manner. You know, this sentence serves a purpose. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's very cool. And it's something that I think that, uh, more people need to be aware of because uh, most people just sign the contract and they get the job. They don't really pay too much attention. They're like, "Oh, California law protects me from this stuff, from anything bad." Uh, and uh, it's you know, it's not true. So, uh, well, it's never wise to make assumptions about your legal position. Yeah, exactly. So you know, so when I went to work at Heroku, I I decided yeah. I, I I had vowed I was never going to work for a publicly traded company again. Um, but I, I did, right. I decided to, because it, they showed through some, like, there were some developers who work at the company that made some core yep. software. And like, it was obvious that they, that, that was like an established pattern and that's okay there. So even if the contract says something like that, uh, the contract's only there to enforce what isn't socially enforceable basically. And there's no need for the social enforcement. So the contract doesn't need to be enforced either. So, but I did give them two pages of claims <laughs> of things that were mine uh and it was a 
It was good. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it, the issue, as far as most technical people are concerned, is, you know, like, why do I have to have a 46-page uh, uh, staff handbook? And the usual response is, well, because the company needs to protect its legal position. And that might, you know, to to somebody with little business experience, that might seem a frivolous approach or it might seem a selfish or a greedy approach. But the the issue that you have to remember is that in a successful startup, and let's let's remember only one startup in what, somewhere between 10 and 25 is successful. In a successful startup, huge amounts of value are being generated. And that's basically money in the bank to people ultimately. So things yeah. can get a bit serious sometimes. Yeah, when you work for a company, you know, when you're as a software developer, I feel like, you know, you're, you're effectively, uh, um, you know, they're, they're harvesting your mind for, for information effectively. And that's what they're paying you for is for that. Well, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying that like, okay. Yeah. Like you're, you're a thought worker. Struggling to understand your, I was struggling to understand your analogy, really. It sounded a bit like you know, they're coming along and sucking your brains, but no, I know that's no, no, not no. what you were trying to say. No, but you're a thought worker, basically, and they're, they're paying you for your thoughts. Yeah, right, so exactly. That, what that contract does is it lets them own them, including your ideas and stuff like that when you work for them. Ah, well, now this is it, you see. The point is we, I believe, are the magicians of the 21st century because uh, for a long time, without really fully understanding the implications when people ask me you know why had i been involved in computing so long and why did i still love programming and this kind of stuff and my answer is because and again this goes back to you know the ability to represent anything because you can it lets you build castles in the sky you can imagine any system you like operating on any rules you like and you can model it and you can you know query the model for information yes it's pretty cool. I love, I really like programming. And that kid that I'm, he's not a kid anymore, he's 20. So that guy that I'm, <laughs> that I'm helping, uh, you know, you know, with stuff, he, uh, it's interesting because he like has, has struggled with, uh, he's very intellectual and he's struggled with, uh, you know, just like trying to think of the right way. Yeah. He it. wasn't a very practical person. He had to get somebody else to tie his shoes. Um, yeah, kind of, definitely. So, <laughs> okay. and he's saying, he's, ta he's so excited because he's only started, been doing this for like three or four weeks and, and he's talking about how much it's helping him think better already, just learning how to program. And I, I think that's a really cool, yeah. uh, I just, yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice to see the uh, light bulb starting to brighten. Hopefully not darken. <laughs> Yeah, well, indeed, yeah. That sometimes happens. But So, uh, I want to ask a question for you. What, yeah. uh, so, I dropped out. And I'm, I'm an autodidact. I'm self-taught in everything I do. Um, yeah, right. Uh, do you have a degree? And, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, is it in CS or? Uh, yeah, I, I have a first-class honors degree in computational science from Leeds University as the result of a three-year course. But um, that's a long time ago. I graduated in 1976. And by the time I went to university in 1973, I'd been working for eight years. And uh, pretty much six of those had been spent working with computers. So I was fairly sure, I, well, I, apart from a year as a bus conductor, but we don't, yes, a few months as a bus conductor, but we don't need to go into that. But yeah, I was fairly sure I wanted to work with computers. So did, did you um, find at that time uh, in like... I want for me it's that time in history 
So I, I hope that doesn't sound insensitive at all. Uh, oh, don't worry. No, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm too insensitive to be insulted by. No, I mean, why, why do you think it would be offensive? You, you weren't there. Well, well no, for me to say that time in history, I, I think a lot of people are sensitive about uh, their age. Um, what, what is? So, did you find that in that time in history? Um, yeah, that the the having that CS degree was crucial to like succeed in what you were doing. And oh yeah, I mean basically, I'd um, I got I'd been I'd been working in computing for uh, about five years. I realized that if I wanted to have a lifetime career, I I really was going to need some qualification because although even autodidact as as I then was, uh, I could get a regular good salary progression that wasn't going to go on forever and, and, and so and i figured well okay i'll make this my profession and i'll learn it properly and if you don't mind me asking did you i don't know what the structure was for i know i assume school is was significantly cheaper back then um oh absolutely yeah i mean nowadays uh uk students are subjected to the same kind of penury that they are in the united states where basically nobody gives them anything and they have to borrow whatever they need to fund their own education, which personally I think shows a dismal uh, lack of the wish to invest in the future. But, you know, the young people have got to I take that up with their government. There's nothing I can do to tell them about, you know, what they should do over there. But anyway, yes. So, um, in those days, you could actually get all your tuition paid and... Not a substantial grant, but enough to kind of keep family and home together. Because remember, when I went to university, I had a three-year-old kid. I was married. I had a mortgage. Wow. That's fantastic. So, well, yeah, it might might seem that way from this distance. But back then, it was quite difficult, you know. Oh, of Um, of course. I mean, well, compared to the the situation today is like, I think personally. Oh, I quite agree. Yes, I mean, I know, I know, young people in London who are struggling, and it's like you know, the the, the ability to climb onto the property ladder. It's like the first rung is twelve feet off the ground now. Yeah, like I know someone who got a degree and uh, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt from it, and uh, you know, it's it's never. I, I hope that it's useful one day, but like I, I well, yeah, but... she can never. She's never gonna. At least from what I can tell, she's never going to be able to pay that off in any way uh, at all. You know, she she can barely, like, survive. So it's... Um... No, it's very difficult. And, I mean, there is, of course, no concept of, um, of forgiveness in debt. Because th- I'm not sure... I, am I correct in saying that not only do uh, money's owed to the internal revenue services, but also money's owed to the government for or to the to banks for student loans survive through bankruptcy now oh yeah yeah and selling off debt which is i mean that's a that's a that's a brutal move you know i mean suppose for example there's so many because i mean i know people in the united states i mean they they basically they're one of the most i think the most common cause of bankruptcy in the united states is medical expense oh definitely oh it's outrageous yeah i stayed in the hospital during my little mental health incident that i blogged about for 20 days yeah, right. And yeah. I have great insurance, so it cost me $2,000. But the bill is for 20000 So the, Yeah, but the insurance company were probably paying like eighteen to twenty-four. Well, the, the total actual was twenty, And I think that if I didn't have yeah. insurance, it would probably be higher. And I'm, you know, to 
you know, any anyone oh, yeah, that right. would like cripple their entire life, basically. Uh, I didn't get where I am today by not being able to work out what medical costs would be. I mean, while I was in the United States, by the way, I should mention, I had a uh, left knee replacement. And always been very glad that I had the surgeons that I did. That's good. Yeah, it's amazing that sure. the care is available. It's just it's unfortunate that it's so uh, so expensive. Not universally accessible. Well, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to transition as well. Um, it isn't. Yeah, that's right. When, that person I was talking about. Well, like, when the United Kingdom did it, it was like, you know, immediately after the Second World War, uh, there was a feeling that everybody needed some help, that kind of stuff. It was a different political environment altogether. And so the people of the United Kingdom basically said, yeah, right, let's let's go for a system that helps everybody. But in today's world, this is like, you know, what, 60 years later, 70 years later, nearly, it's not as easy to try and transform an economy that's already, you know, the medical economy is already firmly embedded with insurance companies and various other people all, you know, making money or, or paying wages to people to pass charges between them. Yeah. I mean, my major concern, I guess, because <coughs> of the experience me. I had is just, I have an awareness now of mental health issues and, you know, there are people that yeah. really have some severe ones and they often are in a place in life where they... There's no, they don't have insurance and they can't afford to even go see right. a doctor uh, to get checked out. You know, they don't apply. They don't fit in the criteria for the government assistance. And it's just, yep, uh, right. it's interesting to see. I hope that stuff improves. They live beyond the pale. Um, so if you want to transition topics, you, you moved from the yep. UK to the US and back. Uh, and you mentioned that that was, you know, the, the primary reason for moving back to the UK was to uh, be with a, a partner that you love, right? And yeah, right. I think that's like a, just a really powerful statement. And that's like really cool that you did that because that shows like, you know, what where priorities are in life and like what actually matters. And because uprooting, I, I don't want to, I don't like the idea of getting a new apartment a couple blocks away and moving. That feels traumatizing yeah. to me. And I moved around right. a lot as a kid, but I can't imagine moving countries and you know that's uh i just think that's commendable a and b i wanted to know if you had anything to share just about that whole concept well yeah i mean um in fact julie my current partner and i have known each other or we first knew each other a very long time ago but didn't through our adulthood and then um only latterly towards the end of my uh, marriage did we uh, come to know each other again but uh, you probably remember I think it was about what six years ago now maybe a bit more I moved from the east coast to the west and went to live in Portland yes and that in fact coincided with my separation and divorce uh, from my wife but um, not wishing I mean you know to put it in terms that people can understand, although it doesn't necessarily have any direct relevance, not wishing to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, I felt it was best to spend some time just, you know, establishing my own life as an individual. And it was at yes, that time, yes, you know, during yes. that period. So that was when you came to visit me in Portland. I think you came to the apartment, was it twice? Uh, I don't know. Or maybe just once. I think just anyway, once, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but that that was a, a very pleasant evening that night. You you came out and took that photograph. 
<laughs> yeah, I took a great picture of you. Uh, or for the listeners, the uh, I took a great picture of Steve, just kind of like in his element. It was very, it was very cool. Uh, I like it a lot. Surrounded with all kinds yeah, of I was, awesome I was objects I, I... and things. And I, my favorite part is this little foot, that Monty Python foot that's hanging from your. Uh, I don't know if it's a Monty Python foot, but that's what I thought it was, hanging from uh, your blinds. And I just, it was just a great picture. <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah. I remember at one point I was uh, I was considering starting a business called Monty Python's Flying Empire or something like that. I can't remember now exactly what the oh the premise I, was going to be, but it was going to I, be I, somewhat I, Python-esque, I, and so the part of the symbol which Idan Gazit helped. Uh, with with the design for was the Monty Python, you know, the Gilliam foot coming down yes, on the yes. whole enterprise, <laughs> doomed from the start. It, I, I relate Monty Python to Douglas Adams because they came into my life at the same time, and uh, I, I I forgot to mention earlier for the listeners, I wanted to announce that the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which is the website, it's available at python-guide.org, um, is now available in book form. Uh, on Amazon, it is going to be. I got the first physical copy, like the first one printed, um, like yesterday or the day before, and it's it was really cool to see it from O'Reilly, and I know you have affiliations with them or did I, I don't know. And uh, yeah, right. I just I thought it was cool because I was able to use that name. Uh, it's you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which uh, yeah, you know. I just I just appreciate being able the freedom to to use that name because it's like an homage, and uh, you know it, yeah sure there, there, there well, probably well, could I mean, be legal who, things who around had it. To, who but, had yeah but but who had to give you permission? No, no I but don't think I didn't so. ask for permission. I just did it, you know, and they and they didn't <clears throat> yeah, care, right. so I didn't care, and you know it's perfect. Sure. And well, I, the point of the you know, one of the purposes of dealing with companies like O'Reilly is they they have people who will warn them before stuff like that gets them into trouble. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's on them, not on me. <laughs> well, right, yeah, they've got the skills to do the diligence is all I'm saying, yeah. and they will. Yes, exactly. And I, I guess I, I really appreciate that about the Python community in particular. There's a lot of communities that, uh, you know, they, they, they all have different cultures for different programming yeah. languages. And uh, I know that the Ruby community in particular em- embraces a certain type of... Uh, I want to say flagrance almost in like what in a, in a good way and like what they build and how they share share things um, and like kind of like in a not an absurdity but just like they just they just like take it to they think outside the box and in Python I just really appreciate the uh, you know the doc you know the name itself is an homage to Monty Python and all the documentation has all these references and we have. Uh, you know, and just like a project like yeah, well, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python. I mean, that's all, that's all down to Guido. He was a Monty Python fan, as was I when I was Well, how couldn't you be? Younger, and still am, come to that, pardon? I said, how couldn't you be? Well, no reason at all. I mean, Monty Python, they were deliciously different when they came along. Yeah, Talk I'm... about thinking outside the box. I'm actually, so I have the show, uh, <clears throat> and I can't, I don't really like it. It's funny, but I love a lot of the sketches and know them um, from their audio recordings that they released. They released yeah. a bunch of CDs with like really good recordings of a lot of the sketches, uh, and so that's yeah, how right. that's my main like like I know a lot of their work, but it's mostly through that. Uh, uh-huh. and, right. and I don't know if it's just because it's 
I, I don't know why, but when I try to watch the show, I just can't, I can't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have to say, looking at some of the shows now, they do seem a bit dated, but then, you know, I was like the generation before, my generation's equivalent of Monty Python was a show called The Goon Show, which you've probably never even heard of. I have definitely heard that name, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, right. Well, it's just, a, I mean, it was <clears throat> zany humour of the 1950s, immediate post-war 1950s, I suppose, and 60s, really. But, yeah, that was the comedy I grew up with. It was all insane, you know. I mean, there's this there's this character called Eccles who, who talks like this. Yang, yang, yang. <laughs> and there's another... There's another character called uh, Neddy Seagoon, who speaks very roughly like this. And at one point, they're walking around this empty building looking for each other. And Seagoon's torch lands on Neddy, and, and Seagoon says, Neddy! Uh, just says, uh, Eccles, what are you doing down here? And Eccles says, well, everybody's got to be somewhere. <laughs> and in the 1950s, that was, that was funny. It's, it's, it's funny how times have changed. Um, so... Well, right, yeah. We don't need to talk forever. I, uh, there's, I wanted to ask you... Um, what? So, what are you working on right now? And, like, what are your goals? And, yeah. Okay, well, there's this thing called the Limit Order Book, which is basically, uh, I suppose, the simplest way to explain it in words of less than 93 syllables is uh, that it allows us to reproduce every state of the market for a particular security Hmm. through the trading day. So we are building a computation, well, we're building a computational platform for that data. We're also, of course, ingesting huge amounts of data and trying to make it available. Uh, We're in alpha at the moment. And so we've got a, a promising alpha product with a lot of engineering work to do, I think, is the easiest way to express it. Uh, can't talk particular technical directions, but we're using... It's interesting to see that the technology choices we made have been echoed a couple of months afterwards by the uh, couple of giants in the open source and financial world. Oh, very cool. Are you... Can you say, are you using, like, Python and data, the Python data science tools, basically, or something to... Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's... All our at the moment, all our application code. Uh, part, I mean, I think we're using a couple of C parsers, but uh, all the application code at the moment is in Python. That's, a, yeah. that's excellent. Python three, in fact. But I guess Python I guess what three. I meant was like the, the the Python data analysis tools that like are kind of in like the continuum in the in the you know Py data community. Well, There's, right. Is it sure. is it that? Are well, you using that style of tools? Uh, well, right. In fact, what we what we did uh, for our alpha product was we introduced a web ID based on the Jupyter technologies, which allowed people to enter Python code and display graphics. That's fantastic. And so, current developments, we've now got effectively as as much of the notebook interface as we feel our customers ought to be allowed to use available uh, in our alpha site but yeah the really encouraging thing was uh, while we were implementing that so are you kind of using like uh, Jupiter as an engine for your front end basically and you have your own front end that you're presenting a product with well yeah I mean the attraction the attraction of Jupiter is it allows people to write you know, literate programs allows people to communicate algorithms in ways that will change this and it'll do that and this kind of stuff and run it 
for themselves. So it's a very good way of exchanging code. And you're able to use um, it just as an engine, though, and like you know, surface only parts of it to the user that are useful. Basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, we try not to reveal irrelevant detail. Let's say yes, that's certainly something that that we aim not to do. But yeah, we try to give them an environment that allows them to easily make computations over high volumes of this uh, data Fantastic. across multiple processes. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of technical challenges that my imposter syndrome frequently tells me are beyond me but i've got a very <laughs> capable i've got a very capable team fortunately and we're having fun uh, starting to think about the architecture of the post alpha beta syndrome system it sounds like just from the you know customer presentations uh you know the ux perspective that, that is a, a good approach I, I i like that a lot Hmm. Well, I mean, we're having fun. For, you know, if you can't have fun, then why are you doing it? And sometimes, of course, the answer is for money. I mean, when I worked in the TV factory, I, there were a lot of people who didn't work there because they loved making TVs. They worked there because they needed money. Yeah. Back to the need to pay the family, I suppose. Hopefully it's a combination of the two, ideally. <laughs> I've also realized, by the way, I have a product to pimp. I'd completely forgotten about that, but that, this shows you how commercial I am about my writing activities. Were you aware that I was helping um, Alex Martelli and Anna Ravenscroft with the third edition of the Python in a Nutshell book from O'Reilly? Uh, I personally did know that, yes. Ah, okay, good, yes. So um, I'm happy to say that uh, I actually finished writing the last chapter that needed writing while I was away on vacation in Sicily. That's like a very like core book like that's a, an important book for the community or you know out of the, all the books that are available i, I feel so. like that's yeah, like a I mean, really good one yeah well alex did a very conscientious job for the first edition and then anna i think uh helped out a lot because if it hadn't been, you know if, if alex had had to do it on his own there probably never would have been a second edition but i was very honored when they um they asked me to join, and of course, shortly after I joined the team and, and had started to do some writing, I then became the CTO of this uh, of my current employer, and so I haven't really had as much time to devote to the book as I'd have liked, but uh, they've been very patient with me. That's good. So do you know, is there a timeline for that, or is that just like a work in progress? Basically, there's going to be a new edition? Well, there is going to be a, a new edition. Uh, there was initially, I think, some idea we might get it out for Christmas, but I think more realistically, we'd, we'd like to take a little extra time and make sure it can go into production early in the new year, which will mean that by uh, PyCon, for example, it should be in, in print, I would think, and possibly a few earlier conferences. I don't know. PyCon's in May next year, right, in Portland? It sounds about right. I think so, yeah. It's, um, and then there may be OSCON, for example. There will probably be a few conferences where it's possible to get a copy of the book. Sounds exciting. But yeah, it's been a very... Well, it is. It's, it's been a very interesting experience for me. And Because uh, one of the reasons that Alex and Dana wanted me on the team was I've got a bit more experience of Python 3 than they have because I've been using it for... A bit longer, but you know, I mean, it's be the it's intimidating being the authority on anything when you're working with Alex and Anna. Oh, so so Python, <laughs> the second edition is Python two, I assume, and this is the, the the Python three version of the book, which is 
not separate. It's well, the same is, book. This is actually, I, I think it's, it's probably fair to say this is the V2, V3 version of the book, right? So our, our definitions for the book are V2 is 2.7 and nothing before. Yeah. Although, obviously, a lot of what's in V2.7 applies to previous ones, but we don't dwell on the difference. You know, 2.6, 2.5, it's all history, effectively. But this isn't Python and, 3 in a uh, nutshell. This is Python in a nutshell, and it's all Python 3. Yes, exactly. Well, it, indeed, and we That's try it. to highlight the you know, differences between Python 2 and Python 3. And the last chapter that I've just finished writing was, in fact, the version 2, version 3 migration and coexistence chapter. Oh, that's for, okay. Okay, that sounds like a, a great like mentality for how I think that the community should be at the moment. Basically, where like Python yeah. is Python three, and uh, you know, yeah, effectively. And, and but, well, but right. what I've I mean, observed what is the opposite. Everyone's everyone in my world is still using two in the business world. You know, uh, building their tools. So I think that like books like that need to be written, and that so that we can all kind of grace into that, you know, over the next year or two. I will. And I mean, all I would say to them is ask not for who the bell tolls <laughs> because that bell is tolling and it's going to stop ringing altogether in 2020. And if, if you're still relying on Python 2, you're effectively on your own. And I mean, obviously, in writing chapter 25, it may not end up as 25 in the, the final book, by the way, there may be some reordering, but in writing the coexistence and migration chapter, I had to consider the various migration strategies, and one of them is, in fact, if you've got a limited lifetime program, just keep it running in Python 2.7 and uh, end of life it before 2020 and replace it with something else, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very Again, insightful you know, suggestion. A very what? Sorry? A very insightful suggestion. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's not like everyone's just going to be able to pe throw all their software away in 2020. I mean, transitions <laughs> have to be planned, right? Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, we tried to, I mean, I, I did also put into that chapter um, a practical example of using 2 to 3 to convert a library from Python 2 to Python 3 so that people can get some idea of the sort of practicalities involved. Did you present Although the approach of writing you know, that subset of Python that works both on two and three at the same time? Well, after the two to three conversion project, I then demonstrated that, you know, that had broken the Python two tests. So I fixed it. So it worked in Python two as well. Yes. I mean, that was part of it. Although, I mean, there's also a three to two tool, which I, to be honest, I haven't um, investigated too deeply. But there's a number of conversion strategies, and we try to basically, you know, at least mention them all. And nowadays, the most up-to-date information is typically going to be on the internet anyway. So yeah. we try not to get into specific versions. It's more, most of it is is more strategic. And of course, obviously, we have to talk about the uh, the syntax that's available okay, it, that works cross-version and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. For me, I mean, the the, the Python that I write is like is it always works in two and three at the same time. And that's what I always try to do. But that's, I'm a library author primarily. I'm not an app. Well, okay. Developer. I mean, if you, it, here's, here's a simple practical test of your Python skills. I can put you on the spot right oh, now with a, I might fail. I'm a rusty. brief interview question if you want. Okay. What is the difference between Python, what is, between the value in Python 2.7 and Python 3.x? of the expression bytes, open parenthesis, three, 
close parenthesis. I don't know what bytes does in two. Right. Well, that's that's the odd thing is that the the constructor works differently between the two versions. Yeah. So in Python in Python three bytes of three, the three is converted to a string and then represented as a byte string. So you get the character three. You just get the integer Whereas, basically. It, yeah, it, it's just some kind of bizarre conversion that, that it goes through because I don't know whether it was planned or what, that behavior. But in Python 3, it gives you a byte, a, a byte string of three null characters. Oh, oh, okay. I did know that. I did know that. Yeah, right. I know if you do right. byte 8, it gives you like eight character, eight, eight null characters, right? Yeah, so we. Yeah, I had to try and cover the most significant of those wrinkles as well because some things aren't quite as obvious as as they might be. So we've tried to give people some practical help on conversion as well, because it's, if you've got a large code base, it is a bit stressful having to consider moving it to what's essentially a slightly different language. Yeah, I had a lot of anxiety about um, the Python community and like uh, the rift that was forming between the, the, the two and three and the future. And uh, I gave a talk uh, many times called Python two and three, a sacred love story. So I just talk about how important Python is in the world. And how our community could, you know, die effectively or, or be scared. Oh, I can picture you doing a little hippie dance. But I was similar. I mean, there was a time way back when, when there were about, I don't know what, four or five different competing web frameworks. And people said, oh, we have to choose one or we'll die. Well, for um, me, it was like, let's look at the numbers. And I show the numbers. And, like, I do, people have, do, do, have people do raise their hands. And this is, like, two years ago. And, you know, it, you yeah. know, it was like less than one per, you know, like maybe less than 5% um, of people right. were using three on a daily basis. And I was just like, see, this is the problem. <laughs> and this is why. Was, <laughs> and so I was, I showed how like, this is important that, that we need to unify these two communities. Uh, no, I don't care yeah. what the outcome is, but they yeah. need to be the same. Well, I, and it's, and I, it has been decided by consensus that uh, everyone just use three and get over it basically. Um, well, I mean, again, thanks to uh, our good friends at O'Reilly, back in the day when they ran the O'Reilly School of Technology, uh, they had me write four modules of, of Python teaching materials, and yeah, I bit the bullet very early, so I think I started writing that stuff in like 2000 and, oh, I don't know, probably 2004, 2003 even. Uh, didn't finish until about 2008. Yeah, you were definitely doing it when I met you. I think you were... That. <clears throat> yeah, and... Oh, right, yes, indeed. And, yeah, that was all Python. I decided I was just going to teach Python 3 because, ultimately, the future is Python 3. And anyone who's learned 3 can easily learn the two seven differences. I In in the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python book, um, I just, my, yeah. my approach is basically... I, I give, like, a... Here's the difference, and here's here's just some like really opinionated reasons for why you should use two or why you should use three, um, and it's interesting because there's at one point I have to do this at Heroku too. Uh, at Heroku, by default, every application is Python two, so yeah. I, I have a whole plan written out for you know how I'm going to go about making this switch, but I have to do it at the right time of making yeah. making the default three, and I'm going to do the book. Or you know, make the documentation that I have um, for you know the Python guide 
update, yeah, update, right. update at the same time, or it's like, okay. Engineering changes like that have significant consequences, so you have to prepare for them. Yeah, well, I'm trying to serve someone practically. Like, I don't, I actually don't necessarily think uh, if you want to become like a, um, uh, a Python developer that works in a company, for example, that sure. learning only three, you know, might actually be a detriment to you possibly. Yeah. So, sure. you know, I take those considerations. But, you know, there's going to be a day, and it, I don't know what, I hope it's, I'm guessing it, it might even be in two years. It might be closer, hopefully. Um, but when that flips, then I'm going to be like, all right, use, use three. And there's no, I have no yeah. objective metrics of when that is. It's just like a subjective feeling of when it feels right, you know? Well, it's, it's sounding like three, seven or three, eight to me, but. Yeah, probably. That's, oh, I, did, I never thought about thinking well, whatever. about it I mean, versions. three, six is out in December. And, of course, the big news is that uh, dicts, I believe, dictionaries are becoming ordered by default. Really? Well, now, there are obviously severe warnings against relying on the ordering behavior because every dict in, in Python since time immemorial has been supposed to have an unpredictable sorted order, right? So... I mean, I'm kind of wondering if it isn't a bit like you remember when was it in 2.3 or 2.2.7 or some kind of bizarre release, uh, suddenly true and false became available and equal to integer zero, uh, one and zero. Yeah. Well, weren't they always And that then, way? so forever people were, you know, they, then they would try uh, true except name error true equals one. And, and there was all that kind of stuff written in code. And I'm... I'm just hoping that people don't get the idea that they can rely on this stuff and then nothing will backport from 2.7. If I don't even know whether they're backporting it into 2.7, but it would be very difficult if people started writing programs re that relied on a 3.6 behavior and then people tried to take them back to 3.5 or 3.4, which are going to be current for quite a long time still. It, I guess my conflict with 3 in general is I feel like 2 is like great and 2.7 is great and... like. I, I I'm I am uh, skeptical of this drive to constantly change something that works really well, you know. Well, yeah, but the point is that the change is actually coincidental. They'd have done better, I suspect, to keep quiet about it. But I mean, it's quite a technical achievement, so you can't blame them for blowing their trumpet. Well, I'm just talking about in general, like all of Python three. <coughs> there's all these changes, and I'm just like, you know, I was like, I really. And I didn't see a problem with the way before. So, and then we're just keep adding more and more things and we have like function annotations and stuff like this. And I'm like, I, don't, oh, I, feel, no, like I, mean, we're, I feel like we're innovating was, too quickly almost. I've, I've, yeah, I've, I was one of the people who, who put that view forward. You may remember there's a moratorium for a long time on uh, feature addition to the language, I think for 18 months or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I was a major mover, but I certainly did at one point express the opinion that the average Python user was finding it a bit difficult to follow all this stuff. And uh, shouldn't we like stick to the knitting and concentrate on user convenience for a while? Yeah, exactly. And to their to their credit, I mean, the development team did spend a lot of time engineering. And I mean, they always get very good write-ups when they get um, checked by these code purity checkers and that kind of stuff. You know, they've, they've been sniffed out fairly thoroughly and the code has been revealed to be pretty high quality so more strength to their arm and thank you any python core developers who are listening oh definitely yeah that's the and i i presented in that talk that i gave that's kind of the core problem or 
it's less of a problem. It's becoming less and less of a problem. But the issue with three and two and what's going on in three and like the issues that existed in three that are they're they've all yeah. been fixed that I know of. Um, is that you know the community uses two. So and they used to be I don't know, every time there was like a new pep out and stuff, I I used to read it. I used to be excited about it. And when three became the official focus and like that is not my focus, I no longer cared about what the core team was doing. And I think that's the case for most of the community. So there's less of an interaction and less of a feedback loop. Well, yeah, but the, the point is, though, right, you've taken an engineering decision not to stay on the bleeding edge, which nobody can argue with. There are costs associated with the conversion. There are reasons why you might not want to convert. But, I mean, you well, can't complain I'm... that the language that they're leaving behind is not exciting anymore. Oh, no, no, no. no. What, well, what I'm saying is, though, I think that some of the issues with three and people's discomfort with it is the fact that there's less of a feedback loop because there's less people involved and interested in the development of it than there was when there was only one python if you will does that make sense well yeah i suppose yes but to which i would answer you know there'll there'll only be one in four years yes exactly we'll get through this only i shouldn't have i had no idea why i did it a completely bogus scottish accent but don't worry (laughs) too much star trek lately (laughs) all right well um i think we cover just about everything pretty late at uh on this side of the atlantic Um, we should Oh, no, we don't need to explain. We've already told people. Um, before you go, I want to ask you one question. Sure. Yes. I have to think of what it is first. I usually have... Well, that's all right. Hmm. That's all right. How about you ask um, me a question? I'm going to delegate. Um, ask you a question. Um, okay. What advice would you give a young person wanting to make his way or her way in the information professions? Somebody maybe between 12 and 15, formative type of age. Hmm. Well, so they well want to you said I could ask the- you a question. That was good. So thank you. Uh, so the end result would be, or the end goal is like they want to like do that as their career, basically. Well, I suppose. No, I mean that's the thing. You see, the first thing to do is to try it for a bit and see if you like it at all, because you might hate it, and then there's no point spending three years training to do something you hate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was kind of where I was going with the idea. Yeah. Is, is effectively like for me, it was just always. I just. It naturally gravitate towards certain things, and that was oh. what, dro- what drove me to where I am, basically. Uh, so I was going to say, with with your own personal educational history, you might be interested to type into your favorite search engine the phrase "the camel has two humps," which is a paper that just came to my attention, um, which suggests, on the basis of not terribly numerically significant evidence uh, that there may be some people who just cannot learn to program. Oh, that's interesting. Which I thought was I thought was interesting. Yes, I think I think probably it's it's maybe a linguistic determinant and they're excluding the visual thinkers somehow and that kind of stuff whereas with languages like scratch even visual thinkers can write programs. Yeah, that's the uh, the the person that I'm kind of like mentoring that I was talking about, he's a visual thinker. 
and uh, yeah, and uh, this learning how to program is working really well for him. Apparently, we'll see if he gets sure. good at it. Uh, it's help, instead, it's yeah. helping him learn how to think. Uh, well, indeed, yes. And I'm, I'm not. That's a, what it does. The brain yeah. is—it's a bit like a muscle. Use it or lose it. I think more in words, in uh, like feeling. I don't know. Yeah, my brother, my brother. I, n- I never realized until my my brother and I didn't know each other. You know, well over fifty years. He's he's always been very interested in music and was a, a gifted. Well, he still is a gifted musician, but he can't play as well as he used to for uh, physiological reasons. And um, he actually thinks, you know, like he thinks about the world and perceives the world in musical terms and sees harmonic relationships that I'd never think about and that kind of stuff. It's oh, amazing the different ways the different ways people perceive the same phenomena. I have uh well as someone who has had some significant brain changes in back in the last couple of years, I definitely understand what you just said about the, yeah, the harmonic right. type of thinking and stuff like that. I I I tried that and right. it, uh it, it made me go crazy, but it's a beautiful way of looking at the world. <laughs> yeah, well, made him go crazy too, but he's back too, I'm happy to say. Cool. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you, yeah, everyone, for listening. Yeah, it's been nice talking to you. When you see, when Alex pops into the studio again, do tell him I was sorry to uh, to miss him. I think the last time we spent time together was... Oh, a conference in Amsterdam eight or nine years ago. It could be now as many as that. I really can't remember. But wow. I, yeah, I've not seen Alex for a long time. Well, hopefully he'll... capable guy. He's given a, he's given a lot to the Python world. I mean, he's been a major contributor to PyPy, and he's done all kinds of other stuff as well. Um, lots yeah. of Django stuff too. Yeah, I consider Phenomenal him to be producer. one of the smartest people I know, and I I don't think I have any reason to think that. I just kind of feel that way. <laughs> Like, um, yeah, I've I've never met anyone who thinks Alex is dumb. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I always really appreciate his feedback and opinions on things, especially. Yeah, right. He like you know he's into security stuff right now, and so I just sure in my mind he's like the person to talk to with security stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, when you got security stuff, you do need people like um, Alex Gaynor and Lawrence van Houten working on it really you know people with brains the size of a planet who actually understand the problems at hand as far as i used to teach security classes you know 15 years ago but now i wouldn't presume you know it's gone so much further but it's a serious business yes it is all right well thank you for joining and uh thank you okay great talking to you thanks for the chance to uh, say hello to your listeners hello everybody and (laughs) i hope i'll see you at some Python conference or other event before too long. Sounds good. Likewise. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Yep. We're done. All the best. Bye.